Good morning. We are continuing in our study in the book of First Thessalonians, but uh, in light of that song, I thought I would just mention something here real quick. Um, you know, Job is a character who um, suffered greatly, and uh, through it, the Lord allowed the suffering to take place uh, for good intention, for good purpose. And um, we read in the scripture in James chapter 5, where the Lord is, uh, or James is talking about the Lord's dealings with us and how he um, allows things to take place in our lives for his purposes, for his glory, for his, um, for his will. But it's also for us as well. And so in verse 10, it says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. I love that passage because Job did not see it at the beginning. He did not see it. He had no way of knowing what the Lord's intention was. And yet, having lost everything in one day, um, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, the end intended by the Lord, which, which is what? That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of things that we go through, unexpected things, praise the Lord. Um, in James, the beginning of James, he talks about trials as well. And he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have it's perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, mature as a believer. That's what he's talking about. And so the Lord allows things, allows trials to come into our life, not so that we might run from him, but that we might run to him. And that is uh, what this is about. We have a tremendous um, uh, benefit that Job did not have. We have the end of the story. We have the whole story. We saw everything that went on there. And we see not only with Job's life, but with so many other saints. And in fact, uh, last, not last week, but the week before when we were in chapter 3, Paul was reminding the Thessalonian believers, look, I told you trials were going to come. And they have. But they're meant for good. They're meant for growth. They're meant for, um, for benefit. So I want to say something. We personally in our family are going through a trial. And the Lord has allowed it. The Lord is gracious and not just gracious. It actually says very compassionate, very merciful. He allows trials to come our way, and they're for good purpose. And um, the, the trial is sometimes... Financial, sometimes physical, sometimes calamities like Job went through. And so I know there's talk or there's been, you know, communication back and forth, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong. And so let me just say up front, very frankly, that uh, Krista has been diagnosed with major depression. For those of you who are in the medical background, you understand that that is actually a medical term. Major depression explains what form of depression it is. And if you were to ask any honest doctor, they know the symptoms, but we know very, very little of the workings of the brain. And so it's important to understand that um, it's different than what all of us normally face at different times, you know, Monday morning blues. You have to go back to work. Everybody experiences that, you know. Um, uh, we all go through seasons or times or hours in a day where we, you know, we eat lunch and we feel, you know, sleepy. That's, you know, a form of depression. <laughs> but that's not what this is, okay? This is a medical condition that uh, needs attention and is getting attention. 
Um, and so I just I want you to pray. The, the main thing to pray for is for health, for recovery, and I would appreciate that, and so would she. So, uh, that said, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll continue on. One of the things that we want to do through this trial is to do exactly what James is saying here in, in chapter 1, and that is count it all joy. Okay, God, there's no trial that any of us ever face that does not first pass through the loving, gracious, merciful, kind, uh, all-knowing hands of the Lord. Okay, Every attribute that God has is combined in allowing the trial to go through. But the nice thing about any trial that we face, it says very clearly in the scripture that there is no temptation or no trial that is overcome, that has taken over or has come to you, but such as is common to men. With the trial, with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The tendency that we have in trials is to run, is to get out from under them. But God wants us not to run from them, not to sidestep them, but to go through them and to go through them with joy. So pray for us that we would go through it with joy. Okay, This is character building. And so I'm so grateful to the Lord that he's got enough compassion and mercy towards us that he is allowing us to continually grow in our Christian life. Okay, And he'll do the same for you too. The trials will be different. All right, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them of his love uh, for them. He reminds them that he, when he came to them initially with the gospel, he treated them as a mother uh, with tender care, with love, with affection, and he treated them as a father, giving them direction and hope and a purpose and uh, movement forward. And in each chapter, Paul reminds them of the coming of the Lord. It's really encouraging to me to see that in this book. The Lord is coming. He is coming. He is coming. And actually, the coming of the Lord should be a motivation to us as believers to live differently than we did before we were saved. The Lord saved us. He's coming back for us. We want to be ready for Him, and we want to be as holy as possible. Um, In particular... Paul wrote and said that in, to do with the coming of the Lord, how God is going to once again step into history and he is going to punish sinners for sins against him. But Paul is also quick to point out in chapter uh, 1 and in chapter 5 that believers will be delivered from the wrath to come. In other words, we will not go through it. It's very clear from 1 Thessalonians that although wrath is coming, God will pour out judgment upon sin, we're not going to be here. The judgment for our sin was already, uh, was already paid for on the cross when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So God's judgment was poured out upon him for our sins and for every believer who has trusted in him as Lord and Savior. But for those who reject the gospel, the judgment of God will be poured out upon them uh, in a future day. And he calls it the wrath to come. And then in chapter 5 he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation here isn't the salvation of the soul. That's already taken place. This is deliverance from the wrath that's coming. So salvation, you have to always put it in its context in Scripture. Does it mean the salvation of the soul, or is it, does it mean deliverance from a difficulty or a problem or something along those lines? And here he's clearly talking about uh, salvation from the wrath to come. When the Lord saved the people in Thessalonica, he justified them. That means that he declared them righteous. They are righteous before God. You can't be more righteous than that. If God declares you righteous, then you are righteous indeed. And that's what he did when he saved their souls. And it's based on the fact that Jesus already suffered the punishment for them. I can look at you 
and I know most of you here in this room, and I can say for those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has justified you. He has already declared you righteous. That's great. But when the Lord saved the people at Thessalonica, not only did he justify them, he sanctified them. And we love these great big theological words. Justification is he has declared you righteous. Sanctification means that he has set you apart for his service, for his glory, for his purposes. Um, And that's what he has done. And the the idea with sanctification, he is making or he has made us holy. He has made us as holy as he himself is holy. That's the the level of holiness that he has um, taken it to. So some of you are studying the uh, class next door here, Sunday mornings, the book Here's the Difference. One of the lessons that we covered a few weeks back is a lesson on sanctification. And how many forms of sanctification are there? How many types of sanctification? Jake has three and a missing finger. So there's four, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Four types, all right. He also has the note, so... <laughs> The first one is uh, pre-conversion sanctification. So pre-conversion sanctification is prior to salvation. And what this is, is that God sets us apart to be his children. The Bible says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And during our lives, God intersects um, our life over and over and over again, drawing us to himself until one day we see our sin, we repent of our sin, and we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But all of that up to salvation is pre-conversion sanctification. Him setting us apart for salvation. Then you have positional sanctification. And this happens the moment we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's a work of God and we have nothing to do with it. When we trust him as our Lord and Savior, he declares us righteous. He sanctifies us. That means he makes us holy. We are as holy as God is holy. You say, well, I don't act that way. That's a different kind of sanctification. We're going to get to that one. Positional sanctification means this, that God saves us And he has made us righteous, he has made us holy, he has made us pure, he has set us apart, uh, sanctified us, set us apart for himself. It refers to our position before God. And it's because, again, of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. We inherit, if you will, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection. It's given to us because of what he has done for us on the cross. Then we have progressive sanctification. This happens after we're saved. We're saved. God declares that we are holy, righteous, just, all of those things. But then we look at our lives after we're saved and we say, well, I have this great happy feeling the day I got saved. My sins are forgiven. I'm set free. I'm forgiven. And then I go out tomorrow morning and I sin again. And you go, what's with that? Did I just lose my salvation? Am I no longer walking with the Lord? Well, progressive sanctification happens after we're saved. We see that our position is perfect, but our practice is far from our position. And especially that is especially true when we're first saved. Uh, somebody used to describe it this way. When we're saved, we have all kinds of grave clothes still on us. You remember Lazarus when, when he was dead and he had been dead four days? And, and, and uh, the Lord said, open up the tomb. And they said, he, he stinketh. You know, that's the old King James. He stinks. And when we came to know the Lord, we stunk. Okay? And sometimes I look at my life and I say, I still stink. Okay? So we have grave clothes. And what did the Lord say to him? Loose him and let him go. He came out, you know, because they're, they're wrapped up in this, you know, grave clothes. And he came out probably hopping out of the grave. And Jesus says, loose him and let him go. And our sins are like that. They're like this binding grave clothes on us. And he wants to take those 
grave clothes off of us and clothe us in his righteousness in a practical way day by day. And so after we are saved and until the day we die, we should be growing in holiness, growing in perfection, growing in righteousness, and our goal is to be like Jesus. That's our goal. Believers, when you came to know the Lord, you were saved, but you're, you may not have known this at the time, but your goal is to be like him, okay? to be like Jesus. And then finally, there is a term that we use called perfect sanctification. Obviously, perfect, we're not there yet, so that's got to be future. And so the future sanctification, perfect sanctification is this. The moment we as believers die, or the moment Jesus comes back to take us home to be with him at the rapture, we will be perfectly sanctified. Our position that started way down here will meet our practice, and they will coincide. And our practice and our position will be perfect at that time. Um, We shall be like him, the Bible says. For we shall see him as he is. So, nice little lesson. First John chapter 3 sums it up this way in verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So John is saying, look, you were sanctified and you're, you're perfect. In the eyes of God, you're already perfect because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In a future day, your practice will be perfect like your position is. That's coming. That's the hope. That's the future that we have to look forward to as believers. Now, in light of that, Live that way day by day. Purify yourselves, even as he is pure. So keep this in mind, okay? The whole reason for going through this whole thing on sanctification is it fits our chapter today, and we'll get to it in just a minute. But think about this um, as as we read on in in chapter 4. So let's start with verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we're going to take this verse by verse and phrase by phrase. When Paul says, finally, a lot of times people say, oh, this is the last verse. This is the end of his story. No, this is actually just the beginning. The first three chapters were all about his relationship with the Thessalonian believers and his love for them, and his care for them, and all the rest of it. Now, he goes, finally, he's going to get to the point of the letter, and that is to instruct them in how to live um, the Christian life. So it's the start of the practical teaching of this book. So it seems, if you remember our, our little history lesson as we've been going through this, Paul left Thessalonica. He is now in Corinth. Um, Prior to going to Corinth, he had sent Timothy to Thessalonica to help strengthen the believers. Timothy has now returned and met up with Paul again, and he is telling Paul about all the things that are going on in Thessalonica. And as he explains the things to Paul, he's saying, look, they've got a whole bunch of questions. These are brand new believers. How many of you, when you were brand new believers, had all kinds of questions? I hope you never give up on those questions, okay? You should be asking questions all the time. Bill McDonald used to say, we should have a question mark for a brain, okay? We should look at the scripture and say, what does that mean? How does that apply to me? Keep asking the questions. Well, they were asking a lot of questions, and they were good questions. We're going to look at them. Great questions. And Paul, in this last part of the, of the book, seems to take the opportunity to begin to answer these questions that the Thessalonian believers have. It's a very practical um, epistle at this point, and um, we're going to talk about how to live the Christian life. That's one of the things. What does God say about sex? 
You know, everybody's attention got on that one. Should we all quit our jobs and serve the Lord full time? What happens when believers die? What's going to happen in the future? Is Jesus really coming again? And if he is, what's it going to be like? So there are a lot of really good questions, and the answers are all here in this uh, rest of the book. So in chapter um, 4, verse 1, he says that they should abound more and more. Abound in what? Because he doesn't say in chapter 4 what he abound in. So here's a good question for you. When you see a phrase like that, abound more and more, you go, what's he talking about? Okay, ask the question. And you have to look at context. And one of the, the problems with um, chapter breaks is that you think, okay, end of the story. We finished and concluded everything we've looked at before this. This is all a new thought. But it's not. It's a continuation of what he was talking about uh, previously. So take a look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. Oops, I'm in the wrong book. Hang on. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also uh, to see you. So he's talking to them about their faith and love. Now move down to verse 12 of the same chapter. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Chapter 4, verse 1. That you should abound more and more. In what? Love. Okay? Love. That's what he's talking about um, in chapter 4. Well, Paul is saying this. You know, you're a young church. You've just started. You've only been in existence for a few months. And you're already demonstrating great love for each other. Tremendous love, one for another. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. And abound in love. Keep growing in love. Um, that's what we should be doing. And so Paul is cheering them on. They're doing well, and they should keep it up. Um, Paul says, You received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So what he's saying is they were walking in a manner pleasing to God. You know, as, as I read this chapter, it reminds me of a man in the Old Testament. Anybody want to take a guess at uh, who that might be? The chapter really is a striking uh, parallel to one man in the Old Testament. You may not know. His name is Enoch. Enoch, there's very little said of Enoch, actually. Very little in the scripture. So I'm going to read something to you. It's found in Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Beautiful. Then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says this, By faith... Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That's a beautiful testimony. Man, if you want something inscribed on your, on your tombstone, on your headstone, here is a man, here is a woman, and he or she pleased God. Wow. That's, that would be a great uh, testament of a person's life. So this chapter 4 begins with how we should walk. That we should walk with God, just like Enoch walked with God. And we are to walk in a way that pleases God, verse 1, just as it says of Enoch, that he pleased God. And at the end of this chapter, we have teaching on the rapture. And so the teaching on the rapture is about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the clouds and we 
are caught up together with the Lord. Those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not see death. We will be just like Enoch. And you say, well, that's impossible. How could, you know, millions of Christians just disappear? Well, God already gave a history lesson in Genesis chapter 5. It happened there. God can do it again, and he will. And so um, that's why I say this chapter reminds me of Enoch, that he walked with God. The testimony is that he pleased God, and he was not, for God took him. And I hope the same testimony applies to us here at Calvary Bible Chapel, that we walk with God, and that we please God, and that we live until that day when Jesus calls us home to be with him, and we don't see death. And we're caught up in the clouds to be with him. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Okay, I heard one amen. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. All right, a few more. Good. So you'll be with me in the clouds. (laughs) The fact that Jesus is coming soon and that Jesus is coming unexpectedly, he could come at any moment, should motivate us to walk in a way that pleases God moment by moment. So that's really the setup for the rest of chapter 4. Let's take a look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So let's take it verse by verse here. And this is the section on practical living. Verses 1 and 2, continue to grow in your walk with the Lord, continue to please Him, grow in your love. Verse 3, grow in your sanctification, for this is the will of God. How many people want to know the will of God for their lives? You know, all of you. Okay, great. So, he says, this is the will of God for your lives. What is it? Your sanctification, your holiness, your purity as you walk with the Lord. And specifically, he talks about... Um, sexual purity. We'll get to that in just a minute. But I'm going to ask you a question. He says, um, your sanctification. So let's go back to our lesson at the beginning of the message. Which sanctification is he talking about? Is he talking about pre-conversion sanctification? No, it can't be because they're already believers. So that part is past. Is it positional sanctification? No, because that's something that I said God does for us. It's not something that we do for ourselves. Is it progressive sanctification? Yes. Okay, it must be. Because Paul uh, explains in the next verses what he means. And it's not perfect sanctification because they haven't been taken home to glory yet. So it can only be one. Your sanctification. That is how you live in holiness day by day. God saved you for divine um, service. God saved you, interestingly enough, God saved you to use your body for him and for his glory. Okay? And we'll, we'll see that. Verse 3. Abstain from sexual immorality. To be holy, to live in a way that is pleasing to God... There is a command to follow. It's very simple. Abstain from sexual immorality. Four words. Really simple. It couldn't be clearer. The command is simple, straightforward, and clear. So, let's break it up into smaller chunks. Okay? Abstain. Six times that word is used in the scripture, and six times it means the same thing. It means keep away. All right? Keep away. Keep from. Stay away from. Sexual immorality. And it's like this. Do you remember the guy Joseph in the Bible? And he was tested or tempted by the woman. He really wasn't tempted. She was tempting him, trying to seduce him to have sex with her. 
And it is important for us sometimes as believers to put a few healthy miles between us and the temptation. That's exactly what he did. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Put a few healthy miles between you and sexual temptation. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.22, somebody look that up for us and read it out loud. It says, flee youthful lusts. But, but read it out loud for us. Somebody in the audience, just find it, read it. 2 Timothy 2.22. And while somebody's looking up that one, somebody else can look up for me. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Okay, who has 2 Timothy? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so you have to understand that in this command, it's not just the negative, flee youthful lusts, but it's pursue these other things, okay? So write it down, look it up later, 2 Timothy 2.22. Who's got 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20? Go ahead, no, Ed. God has given us a body. That's how we communicate. That's how we interact with other people. And he is saying, use it for the glory of God. Not for sinful purposes. Not for lustful purposes. Not for self. And he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is placed in you at the moment you believe. And he is enshrined, if you will, in this temple that he has given us, the body. And he says, use it for God. Use it for his glory. Don't corrupt it with sexual immorality. The early church, as, as the um, early church was just getting started, there were questions about lifestyle and things that they should and should not do. And it was interesting. They wrote a document about the things that were so important to them that all of the churches should know. And one of the things, and it's a very short document, But one of the things that is in that document is abstain or flee or turn aside from sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. The book of Proverbs is full of warnings about immorality and the deadly consequences of committing this sin. So, in a nutshell, Paul is saying abstain or keep away. Abstain from sexual immorality. The the Greek word that Paul uses is pornea. I'll say it slower. Porn. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not a Greek scholar. You know that. I could butcher the English language. Pornia. We get our word porn from that word. No surprise, right? What is porn? What is pornography? Porn is meant to arouse erotic feelings for someone who is not your husband and someone who is not your wife. Okay. It's usually in picture or written form, but it is meant to, to seduce you to lust for or desire someone who is not your husband, someone who is not your wife. It appeals to lust, a covetous desire for something or someone. But the term pornea is broader than simply porn uh, as we know it. Pornea really includes every form of illicit sexual behavior and deviancy. In the scripture, it includes immoral behavior that includes uh, illicit sexual intercourse, lustful sexual fantasies, fornication, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, pedophilia, prostitution, and on and on the list could go. There is only one command about all of this porn or pornea. Abstain from it. Abstain from sexual immorality. Remember, Paul is answering questions that the church had. Good questions. Really practical questions. They were brand new Christians and they had come out of a very promiscuous lifestyle. Many were probably struggling 
with, well, what do I do now? Oh, I mean, I'm so used to this. And it was included in their idolatry. It was part of their worship of idols, this whole promiscuous sexual thing. And Paul is saying, look, you're different now. God has sanctified you. Now you need to be sanctified. You need to be holy. And so he is encouraging them this way. Just like their society was, our society is obsessed with sex. We are bombarded with sexual messages at every turn in every form of media. And our view of sex is warped. It's warped by what the world teaches us, the world suggests to us, the world puts in front of us. It's warped. John MacArthur wrote this way. He said, not only is sexual sin tolerated in any form by anyone and with anyone else at any time and in any place, but it is promoted and advocated through every means available to man. We are taught in our society to tolerate sin, to tolerate sexual deviancy. But the scripture has one answer to that, and it's right here. Abstain from sexual immorality. In every form, abstain from sexual immorality. So the term is a broad term, and it includes all forms of sexual impurity. It includes premarital sex, fornication, extramarital sex, which would be adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and all the other perversions. Um, Sexual deviations were part of their previous lifestyle, their previous religion. Now they are to abstain from it. Many young Christians, many single Christians, uh, particularly when they have an interest in dating, they go, well, how far can I go? How far can I go in this relationship um, without sinning? And it's a reasonable question. It's a reasonable question to ask. The answer is um, abstain from sexual immorality. It's the same answer. In every form, including everything or anything that is lustful or leads to lustful behavior. The answer to the question, how far can I go? I have an answer. You can go all the way. All the way to the front of the church building and get married. Okay? That's how far you should go. If you are burning with lust, get married. That's what the scripture says. The scripture is so practical, and we are so impractical. But it says that, that it's better to marry than to burn. It says that in the scripture. And so, go all the way, all the way to the front of the church, before your family and your friends, where you can take a vow to forsake all others, And live only for that one. That's the vow that we should be taking. Clinging to your wife or to your husband. Um, And I I need to say that. You know, clinging only to your wife if you're a man and only to your husband if you're a woman. I have to say that in this society, don't I? For in marriage, you have the one and only place that God has designed for a pure sexual union. It is in marriage that God has provided the greatest sexual union. Fulfillment. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Brothers and sisters, clearly God invented sex, it was His idea. Clearly, God made it pleasurable. It's His choice to do that. He could have just simply said, you know, you're going to procreate by a handshake. That's it. Done. All right? But that's not what he did. And he made it pleasurable. And it's right that he did so. Clearly, God endorses the sexual relationship in the context of marriage. But clearly, he has set protective boundaries for our good and for our enjoyment. And that that boundary is the marriage bed. That's what he says. This simply means that you are free and you are encouraged to enjoy sexual pleasure with your own wife or your own husband 
Period. End of story. No alternative. Flee sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. Those who practice sexual sins, the Bible is pretty clear about it. Those who make this their practice, it is their way of life, they are not saved. Simple as that. Galatians chapters 5, verse 19 to 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A person who is a fornicator or an adulterer, is unclean, is lewd, and so on, I want to tell you this, they can be saved. They can be saved. God has done a wonderful, wonderful thing. Even in our midst here, people who, that was their lifestyle. That was who they were. Paul says um, in another portion of Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. That's where you came from. He could say the same thing of the Thessalonian church. Such were some of you. You came out of idolatry, sexually perverted idolatry. Such were some of you. But God has gloriously saved you. So a person who is a fornicator or an adulterer can be saved. Think of the woman who was caught in the act, in the very act of adultery, and was about to be stoned by it, by, uh, to death for it. And Jesus told her accusers, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all, well, yeah, I can't do that. And they all walked away. And Jesus was alone with her, just her and Jesus. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And he said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I tell you, salvation came to that woman's house that day. She, no doubt, believed on the Lord and was saved. Go and sin no more. Abstain from sexual immorality. Same thing. There is forgiveness for the repentant sexual sinner, just as there is for any sin. Can a gay person be saved? Yes. Can a homosexual person be saved? Yes. Can a uh, an adulterer be saved? Yes. Can a fornicator be saved? Yes. Can a pedophile be saved? Yes. If they repent of their sin and they trust alone in Jesus Christ as their Savior. You say, well, a believer. What about a believer who falls into this sin? Can a believer sin in these areas? Yes, he can. Otherwise, why would we have this uh, teaching? Why would he say abstain from sexual immorality if it was impossible for believers to fall? A believer may fall. We know that. But I want to tell you something. A believer can also repent. A believer can also come back to the Lord. A believer can also find forgiveness and be restored. Think of the man at Corinth. Remember him? Wow. Talk about bizarre. Okay. You want to take a worst case scenario. This man was committing adultery with his own mother or his stepmother. We're not sure which it is. But it was his father's wife. Wow, that's just bizarre. Well, you know what? We are so sinful, we can do any evil thing. And he was a believer. And how do we know that? Because he was put out of fellowship as a believer until he repented. And then when he repented in dust and ashes, when he cried out to the Lord for forgiveness, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, Look, see how, how uh, strong he is in his return to the Lord. Receive him back as a brother. And I want to tell you that uh, the Lord can do and is doing amazing things with people who have sinned in this area, and they can be forgiven. And when a person trusts in the Lord and comes back and says, I have sinned, just like the prodigal returning to his father, or just like this man who came back from committing adultery, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even in sexual sins. And we as believers need to receive back those who have repented and turned their hearts back to the Lord, even from sins like this. Encouraging. 
Encouraging words. Abstain from sexual immorality, he says, but fornication and all uncleanness, he says in Ephesians 5, or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting. These are all sins of the mouth in this case, uh, in, this, in this last verse here. Um, there, there's sexual jokes and all of that kind of stuff, which are not fitting. What is fitting to be coming from our mouth? Thanks. Thanks to God for all that he's done for us. Verse 4. It says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Well, there are two possible interpretations of this verse. His own vessel may mean his own body, that that we should know how to um, learn to control or learn self-control, that we do not... uh, uh, give into the body with its passions. Self-control must be learned. How do you do that? Well, you do it by replacing lustful fantasies with actions of holiness and honorable um, actions. But it also may mean, or it could mean instead, uh, a man's own wife. His own vessel could refer to his wife. And so the solution to the sexual drive is really Quite simple. As I already pointed out, get married. Get married. The marriage bed is undefiled. Sanctify your wife. Um, Darby wrote it this way. He said, um, marry your own wife. Each man should take possession of his own vessel, that is his wife. Uh, Each man should marry his own wife and enjoy the sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage. And that way he will be treating her in sanctification, setting her apart for himself alone, and honor uh, as well. In verse 5, he is commanded to treat her with honor, not in passionate lust like the unsaved Gentiles treat their wives. What do you expect? They don't know God. Our wives, by the way, should not be the object of our lusts, and I mean that in the sense, our desires, yes, but but evil lusts, no. Um. When a man marries a woman, he is choosing to love her and choosing to demonstrate sacrificial love for her. That is what he is choosing to do, and that's what he should do. I've often said, when I taught this in the intern program um, years ago, I taught two weeks on uh, marriage and the family, and one of the things that I said in the sexual relationship is that every husband and wife should have over their marriage bed this verse. Love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. The world says, it's all about me. It's all about my needs. It's all about what pleases me, what satisfies me. But the Christian husband should say, no, no, no. It's all about her. It's all about what pleases her. It's all about what satisfies her. Love does not seek its own. We are commanded in verse 6 not to defraud a brother in this matter. So this is another question they would have had. Well, how far should we go? Well, you don't take advantage of another man's brother, another brother's wife, I mean. Sorry. Not to defraud a brother in this matter. It simply means don't take advantage of another brother's wife. And there's a clear reason why you should not do it. Not not only because of sin, but also because of what it says here. God is the avenger of all those who do such a thing. Um, They had already been warned against this when Paul was there. And uh, sexual immorality is a sin, the Bible says, against the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Immorality is a sin against your own body. It says that in the scripture. He sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is also against other people, the innocent husband, the innocent wife, the unborn or the aborted children that come as a result of a union. Paul says that uh, God did not call us in uncleanness or immorality, but in holiness. And then I think that uh, Noah had read this verse from 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were bought at a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, 
which are God's. So how do you respond uh, or answer people who think that sex outside of marriage is okay? That sexual perversion, immorality, homosexuality, and all the rest of it is okay? Well, Paul answers that too. He says, anyone who rejects this teaching is not simply despising Paul who gave the teaching, but God who gave the teaching through Paul. He is rejecting God who has given us his Holy Spirit. One day that person who rejects it, or, the, or, or our society who rejects this teaching and wants to embrace all forms of illicit sex, they will have to give an answer to God. But as believers, we want to serve the Lord. We want to do what's right. We want to um, live in holiness. So today, for the rest of the day, I want you to think about one man. That one man's name is Enoch. He is a man who walked with God. And in his walk of 300 years with God, it says he pleased God. He walked in such a way that he pleased God. And one day Enoch disappeared because God was finished with him on earth and wanted him in heaven with him. I want you to do more than just think about Enoch. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to become like Enoch. That's the goal of this message. Become like Enoch. Walk with God. Walk in such a way that you're pleasing God. And one day soon, you're going to disappear. Because God is finished with you on earth too. And he wants you to be at home with him in heaven. Perfectly sanctified. Let's give him thanks. Lord, as we come before you, we thank you so much for this passage and how practical you are in in spelling out these things. And we want to remember what you have said, to abstain from sexual immorality in every form, in every way, in our thoughts, in our um, attitudes, in our actions, to, to abstain from it. And we cry out to you, Lord, that we might be like that man Enoch who walked with you, who had fellowship with you in his walk, and he did the things that pleased you. Let that be said of us as well, Lord, that we walk in such a way that we are pleasing to you. Lord, how we look forward to that day when we hear that glad shout and we are caught up to be with you forever. Lord, may it be so quickly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.